I'm Ira Glass. This is Fangrass Audio. This week, our show in three acts. Act one, what are you doing? We learn of an enterprising young man named Carson Sestouli and his ambition to one day become a certified national public radio host. The trials and travails of his journey may shock you. Act two, no seriously, knock it off. An interloper presents himself in the form of a strikingly handsome man of Irish descent, Kylie McDaniel. He leads Carson down a road of anguish and guilt that leads them both to the top of the iTunes charts and to Mike Berbiglia. Act 3, Kylie, give me back my microphone. The fast-paced lifestyle of being the top podcast on the long-form rambling baseball show, two or less hosts, iTunes charts, Stretches the stooly to his limits before he finds himself retiring via his podcast fortune, making free-range granola in his cottage on Walden Pond. Our show about the rise and fall of a one-note joke stretched to its logical extreme. Coming up, after a note from our sponsor, the impactful new book titled Smooth Jazz, Tote Bags, and jackets with elbow pads. They rhyme because they matter, a treatise on how to talk monotone about stuff no one cares about. Hold on, putting in the old headphones here. I don't think it was, uh, I don't think I was entirely, entirely, uh, Intolerable while we were spent time together. Uh, in fairness, you're a bit biased. Yeah, for or against though, it's hard to say. Yeah, that was uh, one of my uh, one of the podcasts I listened to. There's a guy that says uh, he has a fav- uh, his sort of favorite joke is uh, <laughs> they asked Red's owner Marge Shot, "How do you feel about your chances this year?" She goes, "I think we're gonna win it all, but then again, I'm prejudiced." <laughs> Uh, 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 she 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 had a problem with that. Yeah, uh, that that's probably not going to make the cut. So I guess we should start. Let me give you a clean edit point. Start here. <laughs> no, no, that made it. That made it really? Yeah, I think so. It's about March shot, and it's a fact. That's true. She was. Uh, I mean, she knew what she was doing. She was an older person when she said that. Yeah, I believe the, the term is set in their ways. Yeah. Right. Which actually could be said about some scouts. I guess that's your natural uh, <laughs> segue, right? Yeah, that's a that's a decent segue. Do you see? Do you? Well, actually, I noticed one point you made. Oh, uh, oh yeah, I think you made it because I went back and read. Hey, you should read this piece. Uh, tw- the twenty eighty scouting scale explained, Kylie. You should consider reading that. You know what? I had been kicking around the idea of writing like a fifty five part uh, series about it, but maybe <laughs> I'll show you what this guy wrote. The, the, uh, I know, I recognized, first of all, that, uh, certainly not all, but, uh, a notable minority of the questions I asked you, uh, were answered by that post that you had written when, when you returned to the site. It's a problem I've had in chats where somehow over half the players people ask about are the small, uh, population of players that I've already written about since I've been here, yeah. which, Somehow confounds me that they're just no, random actually, people that don't read the site with random questions, and somehow they pick the you know one fourth of players that I've already written about, and not the other three quarters. No, no. Here's why I bet that's the case. Or this is a theory because you're writing in reverse reverse order of finish, right? 
Yeah. And so these are the team. These are the fans of the teams who have been out of contention for the longest. Or my my theory is I write about them. Some sort of team blog picks it up and like writes a one sentence breakdown of the like eight sentences I wrote, and so it's like out in the ether, and they're thinking about it, and they want to know what's up. When in fact, the idea of asking the question came from what I wrote in the first place. They just don't realize it. There's a circle circular effect. What I'm trying to say is the internet's the worst. Well, yeah, that's we can explore that. Well, and given the intro people just heard, which I haven't recorded yet and you haven't heard, mm-hmm. uh, they know that I know this. <laughs> what? Um, here's a question. With regard to Hunter Renfro and Aaron Judge. Yes, uh, two, two topics of my recent chat. Yeah, right. And um, and I think that it, it's um, there's something there, – there's a point there to explore. You said someone you know was asking you about the raw power you saw among prospects in Arizona Fall League, uh, which is a reasonable question. You mentioned that Aaron Judge, in terms of raw power, uh, probably has something like a seventy, which yes. uh, on you know more or less is a, roughly uh, two standard deviations above uh, the mean, or major league mean. He's, translates he, to roughly thirty home runs annually if it all gets to in the game to give right. people another reference. Right, right, and um. And it's, he's good. We saw he hit the ball hard. He's a giant person who hits the ball hard. Uh, we also saw Hunter Renfro. Uh, we saw his batting practices, which were, I mean, they were cer- certainly adequate, uh, but they were not as impressive as Aaron Judge's. Um, and uh, yet, uh, Hunter Renfro seems to, as you note in your chat today, I think seems to have gotten to more of his power in games. Yes, although I should note that Aaron Judge is getting to plenty of power. It's just that Renfro seems to be the guy that was hitting a bunch of home runs while we were there. Yeah, it will, so here's my question with regard to that, the, this divide between game power and raw power. I, I'm sure that you've answered it in a post already. Let's ignore that. <laughs> uh, the, the, the question is this. Like, is this something which, you're, which you can only sort of verify – like after the fact, you could say, "Well, Hunter Renfro got to gets to more of his game power because Hunter Renfro got to more of his game power." Or are there clues you can find that might help you anticipate that one or the other player will demonstrate that power uh, in gameplay as opposed to just batting practice? Uh, yeah, it's a much much like the hit tool itself, the the game power, uh, I guess, tool or ability or whatever you want to call it, tool subset has a bunch of different inputs. Uh, there's, as I think you noted, there's the effort in the swing. Like a good example is Gary Sanchez, the catching prospect for the Yankees, is sort of notorious for, at least in the last round of BP, basically swinging like he's doing an impression of Jeremy Burnett's, where it's just like everything he got goes goes into the swing, and it's probably 70 raw power, but there's no way he can you know do that swing in a game. Uh, so that's one part of it. So he's probably more of like a 60 game power guy, just because he can you know, sort of hit it a 70, a distance of a 70, uh, but it's obviously not repeatable. Uh, there's certain guys that can show the raw power in the last round when they sort of uh, not only sort of up the effort, but also sort of uh, try to lean back a little bit and launch it, whereas in games and in other rounds of BP, their swing is more of a line drive uh, type swing, mm-hmm. and often you'll see guys like that that have the strength for raw power but don't necessarily show it in games or in BP until you know a couple swings when they kind of change their swing a little bit. If they're really good hitters, they'll grow into it later. I know Joe Maurer was the guy you hear that a lot with, and there's other guys where uh, when scouts talk about like power frequency, which is another word for game power, 
uh, like how often they can tap into their power. Guys that have a really good feel for the bat head have the ability to um, sort of tap into it at the right time. And that was actually brought up for a couple guys. I think it was on the Astros list, uh, Tony Kemp, who has probably 30 or 35 raw power, hit like eight home runs or something last year, which is ridiculous. And the scouts actually might have been more than that. But anyway, there's no way he's ever going to hit that many home runs in the big leagues. But the scouts I talked to were saying he has the ability to do like sort of a slap, gap to gap sort of thing you would expect the guy with his power to do. But then when he gets sort of like a flat, double A, crappy fastball, you know, up and in and right, just the right spot, he's good enough that he can sort of tap into his power when it's there. And I remember growing up watching the Rays Julio Lugo did that, where it wasn't very much raw power, but he would always seem to hit 15 homers because he seemed to always be selling out for power in the right situations. And then, of course, often when that happens, they'll sell it for power in the wrong situations, too, in an effort to try to get paid. Um, but, yeah, and then also plate discipline is another thing. I know uh, Joey Gallo and some of these other sort of swing and miss type guys, you'll round down even though it appears to be BP power that could translate into a game, but they need to sort of, and similar to Aaron Judge, sort of tone down the approach and turn into more of a line drive hitter just as far as what they're trying to do with the plate, not necessarily their swing, uh, to, you know, hit for enough average to kind of move up levels and make it to the big leagues. So, I mean, I guess I name what, three or four things, but it's the same sort of deal. There's a bunch of little inputs, and uh, I think often it's uh, more of sort of a plate discipline type thing that's holding back the power uh, than sort of a stiffness can't make contact kind of thing, uh, okay, although yeah. both happen plenty. Yeah, and, I, and I'm curious, I mean, have you, have you seen cases where um, – you you have witnessed that impressive batting practice power. That same player brings perhaps more of a line drive swing to the game. I assume though that that would still be able to translate, if maybe it doesn't translate directly to home run totals, perhaps it translate to something like a, a better batting average when balls in play. Yeah, that's I guess that's uh, that's on that sort of continuum. Uh, I know I point out to you, Greg Bird was a guy that doesn't try to hit home runs at all in BP. I don't think we saw him hit any. Yeah, uh, and you and like in terms of effort, like he barely like he did not get to hundred percent I had I had felt. Yeah, and Jesse Winker and Kyle Waldrop both uh, lefties uh, I guess on the same team in the fall league or maybe I don't know, maybe not on the same team. But they're all hitting left handed and so we we're all down the side watching them uh, at the same point. I don't think any of them were completely using their legs. They sort of used BP as an opportunity to sort of warm up their upper half, hit the ball the other way, just kind of get in the swing of thing. Wow, that was a pretty terrible pun. <laughs> Thank uh, God it was unintentional. Yeah, and another another Reds prospect, Phil Irvin, was notorious for doing that, that he was probably an above-average power guy but would like intentionally not hit home runs in BP. And I don't know if that's the case now, and they saw him as an amateur. Uh, but I know guys on the Cape would see him take BP a dozen times and be like, I've never seen him hit a home run. And then he hits one out to center field in the game, which is exactly what Greg Bird did. And you're like, I, I guess that's a 55 or 60? And that goes back to what you were saying in today's post, that BP is for figuring out what the limits are of someone's power and then making adjustments, uh, much like how you do with fastball velocity. He throws this hard, you start at a 50 because it's 90-91, and then you move up and down based on other stuff. Right. If they don't give you that baseline, it's very difficult to uh, – I don't think I answered your question. But if they don't give you that baseline, it's hard to make the adjustments. And so that's why guys like Bird and Irvin – and to a lesser extent, Maurer and Tony Kemp and all these guys that don't fit perfectly into that rubric are a little more difficult to judge. But that just means you need a you know a couple a couple more days to see a couple extra bats. Right. Yeah. It's a situation where, and maybe this is something that would happen in the front office. If you have all the information, if you have a sense of what a player's raw power is, and you also have a sense of the degree to which he's 
attempting to tap into it for home runs during gameplay, or or maybe playing a I don't know if it's necessarily more conservative, but he's you know looking for a more contact oriented line drive approach and what that actually like how that actually affects his batting average or ball and play. It would be an elaborate study, is the point, and you would need uh, quite a, a bit lot of moving way. targets. Yeah, yeah, and you would need quite a bit in the way of resources and people handling the numbers responsibly. But it also seems like even if you had a if you, even if you had a suspicion that that was the case, you know, because and I think I mentioned this to you, if if there was a way to, as a scout, put a number in, and I understand this is baked into the hit tool grade a little bit, but if you were to say, pretty sure this is going to be this guy's true talent BABIP, you know, when he's at his peak, or you know, I, to me that is such a that would be such a huge thing because, you know, walks and strikeouts and home runs, those are all certainly essential to uh, producing offense, but there's a huge uh, contribution that BABIP has to to that overall batting line, and it's a pretty wide gap. You know, it's between you know 250, 260 in the low end, and then you know there are players who've carried 350 BABIPs over a number of years. You know, I think like uh, Joey Votto's been in that camp. Uh, Matt Matt Kemp is is been that sort of player. I think Ryan Braun has been that sort of guy. And after the fact, you say, oh yeah, of course, I see them hit the ball. They hit it well, but you know, uh, you don't necessarily know that that's going to be the case beforehand. Yeah, I think we've talked about how there's certain terms and sort of skills you can look for in a report or from talking to scouts about a player to pinpoint that sort of guy and build a statistical profile. Like, I know there's guys in front offices that have told me uh, raw power and game power don't always tell us the player's, you know, isolated power output. We'd like a, you know, more detail than that, and oftentimes the Scout just sees he hit the ball this far, and his swing looks, looks like this in a game, so it's 55 power and 55 game power. And they'd like a little more information, uh, you know, in the draft room when you're splitting hairs between a bunch of different guys of 55 power that play the same position. We'd like to hear more about sort of the doubles and triples and how things are playing in games now and that sort of thing uh, to get at it, which, you know, same thing with BABIP. There's like little clues you can pick out if you're looking for the right stuff about like bat control and uh, gets out of the box quickly and line drives seems to have a really good sense for putting the ball in the right place. Uh, there's actually, I just pulled up his fan page. I won't say the player's name or the, or the team involved. Um, but I was told there was a trade, uh, like four or five years ago and seemed like it was, might be sort of an undervalued minor league hitter that was traded for. It was in the sort of the upper levels. And the team I talked to, uh, one of their sort of guys that was behind the trade said, oh, we looked at his numbers and saw that he had, uh, well, let me make sure I get this right. He had bad early count plate discipline, but really good two strike plate discipline, which mm-hmm. implies he has the ability to have a tight zone and make the right decisions, but early in the count was being given a little too much leeway to sort of swing wildly and then get into bad counts. But then he had enough ability to sort of get himself out of it, but he was putting himself in bad situations. Yeah. And this was a team that is more statistically inclined trading for a hitter in the upper levels with somewhat more reliable stats from a team that was less statistically inclined, which that's sort of an analog for sort of ability to pick out those sorts of things. I can guarantee you the team that traded him did not know that. Uh, or if you ask one of their coaches, they'd be like, yeah, I think so, but it's not important. We'll, we'll fix it. Uh, and uh, was sort of an analog for how the team feels about plate discipline. And this player, they were saying because of this, one was not walking enough, was striking out too much, and wasn't showing enough of his game power. They trade for him. He comes to the big leagues, and all of those things are uh, sort of manifested. He ends up 
you know, turning into a solid everyday player that sort of makes all those adjustments. He ended up not quite meeting his his upside for other reasons, but they sort of picked that guy out and uh, and you know found the upside, which is I guess another example of if you've got a really good analytics department, they can spend years and years looking for the perfect example of a guy like that that seems to have an undervalued uh, sort of power profile that is with a team that is you know open to trading him that may not be aware of some of these things that also happens to want a player that you have that, you know, all those things line up and that's like years and years of work lining up for like the perfect situation to get that guy. And then he does something close to what you think he would do for, you know, sort of a cut rate and all that sort of stuff. So, I mean, that's, that's sort of where rubber meets the road. That's one of the examples of sort of what, what that geek squad can do, I guess, as the Los Angeles Times would call them. We, you, you, yes. Um, I read that article. Uh, <laughs> I think everybody is. Yeah, um, I found it thanks to my Google boy. He, he pointed it out to me. The, what does, uh, yeah, so, so that's a question. I mean, that seems like it would be a tough thing. So you think that's, that's a sort of discovery that comes out of the analytics department as opposed to the scouting department? Well, I mean, those numbers aren't on fan graphs, so you have to have, uh, some, not only have those numbers to look at, but also have the people looking at them closely with sort of some, uh, in some concert with the scouting people and the, the highest executives to sort of have all that work together. And I would guess there's no more than 10 teams that are capable of doing that sort of thing. That's a lot of, that's a lot going on. Yeah. It's a lot going on. Uh, you are, uh, this is gonna, this is a, a this is gonna be slightly awkward for a second. I'm gonna ask you to do something. Uh, I think I'm sending you a link right now. This is, I think I'm sending you a link via Skype. Did you receive the link? I did, but I, all... I wrote I wrote that, so I'm aware of that link. Yeah, right, right, right. I know, but I would like to go if you would come with me. We we did this post uh, <laughs> into early... this windowless van. Is that where you're leading me? <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> it's got uh, it's got uh, fire uh, detail. It's got detailing, nice detailing on it. A fire, yeah. sort of a fire motif, but no windows. You're right. I gotta sorry. There's no windows. Yeah, way to let me down, the unsuspecting <laughs> podcast co-host. The uh, the Manuel the, there's a video here of Manuel Margot. Manuel Margot. Yes. Okay. Okay, got it. Uh, all right, so we did this thing earlier in the week that I it was an exercise that I enjoyed, where I had uh, produced some artisanally crafted gifts, animated gifs. And, uh, they were pickled asked, overnight. I asked you some questions about them and you commented. I think it was a great success. I think it was good. I'm not going to say, um, I'm not going to say it was universally popular, but I think uh, that certain people appreciate it. And I was under the suspicion that if I were a reader, I would also appreciate it. Now, I want to conduct something similar. If people want to follow along, they can, or you could just have this in your head. Well, this is, this is something that concerns a Red Sox prospect named Manuel Margot, who was signed, what, uh, three, four years ago out of the Dominican Republic? On July 2nd, 2011, at yes. age 16, yes. Right. And I don't know, I was casually going through his numbers, I guess. I don't know why I was doing any of that, but uh, I say... Your wife, meanwhile, sitting at the other end of the couch wondering when you'll pay attention to her. No, she does not want me to pay attention to her. She wants me to stay... The end of the couch is too close for her. The... Uh, and for me and most other people. Go right. ahead. The uh, So I'm looking at it, and it's sort of things uh, in which I'm interested because they become reliable quickly. I say, well, look at uh, – he was a 19-year-old in A-ball. He had a uh, decent walk rate relative to a strikeout rate, looking very good there. Appears to have some speed, hit some home runs. And I think the defense – and that's not even the best part of his game, right? He's known as uh, maybe more of a defense first type player, running, running in defense type. Yes. Right. 
And I I really started to enjoy his swing, but I will be honest with you, when I saw his swing, if I had seen it without the benefit of um, his statistical profile, I would have said, well, I could tell that he has he has that quality of looseness, which you've mentioned, uh, I think. He's relatively loose. But he also seems to – there seems to be – I don't know if it's necessarily effort, but there seems to be – maybe it's the way that it, – maybe it's, I see it in the follow-through and this is deceiving me. But what, how, would, how do we describe a swing like this? Because we're getting a lot of good shots from this YouTube video, I think, from Chris Blessing. A lot of good shots of, of it from, uh, from his open side. Yes. Uh, well, I will say I saw him, uh, Margot, briefly at Instructs, and I think his swing looked a little better than this then. This okay. is, a, I believe, from early last year. Actually, let me see where this video is from so I have an idea of the the timetable. Yeah, Margot's not one of these guys that's been at full season leagues a lot, so he doesn't have... Okay, so it was a, around draft time this year. All right, so it was, I don't know, six... Four or five months uh, before I saw him. Okay. Uh, as you said, yes, it has the sort of looseness, uh, and there is a bit of a lunge in it, uh, sort of an aggressive finish, where he's uh, he's clearly trying to get his, his weight forward toward the ball mm-hmm. uh, to get a little power into it because he's not the biggest guy in the world. Right. Uh, but if you'll notice, some guys, like uh, I've pointed out Renfro, Buxton, some of these other top prospects also do this. But the way you can tell they're overdoing it is when their back foot comes off the ground. Oh, uh, right. We saw, right. We discussed that with Renfro. Yes, which you can see in some of these game swings, his back foot does come off the ground, uh, but it's more after he's made contact because he's trying to get out of the box as opposed to he's off balance. Okay. Um, so that's sort of a, uh, a positive in, uh, in his column that he's not overdoing it, even though he's getting his weight that far forward. It means he's sort of doing it under control. And, right. and so when, now I assume that if you're lunging like that, that would make you susceptible to, to breaking pitches. Yeah. Yes. You're basically trying to time contact to have your weight going forward when you make contact. And so when the ball is coming at a time you're not expecting, you're going to be off balance, but if you're keeping your balance throughout all this and you have some bad control, that's when you sort of see what I, I commonly write in my notes, the ass out single where the guy is fooled and is like trying to slow his swing down while his body's going forward mm-hmm. and then pokes his ass out to try to keep his hands back and then just kind of pokes at the ball and hits it into right field. Uh, good hitters do that. It, it looks like a fluky thing you can't uh, sustain, mm-hmm. but good hitters can do that more often than bad hitters. You don't see a lot of stiff, 4A first baseman doing that, but you do see a lot of sort of up-the-middle athletic guys doing that, which tells you that it's – you don't want to keep doing it, but it is more repeatable than it would appear. It looks sort of like an accident sometimes. So that's sort of like the – I don't know, the safety for that kind of swing. Uh, he's, a, as you mentioned, a more of a contact hitter. This is the kind of swing that you're not super excited about when you see it in BP, and then he goes four for five with you know a bunch of balls in the gap that turn into extra base hits, and you're like – Okay, there might be something here. Cause right. if you, if you teach a marginal prospect to swing, it's not going to do a whole lot for him, but he was a marginal prospect to begin with. So, uh, you know, not, not a huge deal. It's, you know, just sort of a, a backup or whatever. Uh, when you got a guy with bat speed and bat control and he's got some feel for a swing to keep his balance and, uh, has some feel for the strike zone and kind of hit different sorts of pitches and things like that, uh, then this can work. And he's also a guy that's I guess the reason I was bringing up that I saw him recently, I didn't see it get out of control. And actually, I think he had a, had a couple hits in the few at bats I saw in Instructs. Mm-hmm. Um, he's a guy that is comfortable against good velocity, which is another thing 
with guys his age that are relatively young, haven't seen a lot of game pitching relative to their domestic peers as teenagers. Uh, you want to see uh, all those sort of elements of stuff playing in games. That swing on its own is not great. Uh, there's some ways he makes it better, and then it plays in games, and he's got really good other tools. And he's probably still going to put on some weight, and part of that swing is sort of limited strength, uh, sort of trying to get your hands started to get the bat speed up, trying to get your weight forward to get a little power. Uh, I had a scout tell me he had, uh, I haven't listed here, a solid average raw power that sort of plays down to 45 in the game. That doesn't look like a guy with solid average raw power, but it is. So I think that might be a... Uh, a lot of times I've mentioned with looseness and a swing and athleticism, you see a uh, surprising amount of sort of bat speed and strength and uh, and raw power. And I think he's one of those guys where it doesn't immediately add up after a round of BP, but then in the scope of four or five games, you're like, okay, this guy's really good. Yeah, it just it strikes me as so tough. Because, uh, again, you know, just with the question of making contact, I wouldn't have expected that from him. But then you you know you see his numbers and you say, well I guess if a guy I mean there's some people right who are just outliers in that regard they can do things they're not necessarily supposed to do and they succeed with it and if they keep doing it then you don't necessarily tell them to stop. And he also signed for eight hundred thousand as a sixteen year old in July too without outrageous tools which indicates that these sorts of abilities were seen early on with him. Okay. Yeah, well, that, uh, something like that is uh, is very helpful. Uh, just to see that th- this is not necessarily about Man- Manuel Margot per se, uh, but just to see that this is a, a case of something that that happens. So just yeah, just a case study, a case study, Kyle, McDan- Kyle McDaniel. And and I would add for another sort of example for context, uh, when the dearly departed Oscar Tavares was in Low A, he was a corner guy with some power, maybe 55 at that point, if you liked it with a really high effort swing that he was making contact with stuff in the low way, people are like, that's a really high effort swing. I mean, you can't expect that to work in the big leagues. And then after a year and a half or so of pretty good plate discipline and power showing up in games and him making a ton of contact, people are like, I guess this is going to work. I guess we have to assume this is going to work. And I guess we'll never know if it was you know, sort of truly going to work, but I would assume it was going to work at some level for sort of an everyday profile, which – uh, that's sort of the trajectory of these sorts of guys. They get sort of noticed when they're signed. They're sort of on radars when they're in short season. And then when they get to full season ball, you start making this uh, sort of the formal evaluation. And if it's the swing's a little bit weird and it's a corner guy, it might take a year or two years for people to buy in. If the swing's a little weird but it's an up-the-middle guy with a lot of tools, it doesn't take quite as long for, you, for scouts to want to believe in it. It seems because uh, it, it seems that there's some relationship between this conversation and that uh, another one that we had with regard to arm action, um, and in particular to to those players. Well, I, mean, I guess it has to do with arm action overall. You and I were, I think we were seeing, and uh, the name is escaping me. Maybe it was Bridwell. I forget if it was Bridwell, the Orioles reliever. We saw we saw some one pitcher who had long arm action. Um, uh, the one that comes to mind was uh, Tyler Wagner with Milwaukee. Maybe that's who you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's say it's Tyler Wagner. Tyler Wagner has. Long arm action, which means essentially like, you know, you, if you're like a batter, you can almost, it, it, he's a right-handed pitcher, you're a lefty batter in particular, you could see his arms stretched out behind him as he's coming, you know, as he's going through uh, his, his delivery. Yeah, it's very easy to follow, not a lot of deception, although sometimes that can qualify, I guess not for deception, but for sort of funk, just because the timing isn't what you expect, because his arm looks like it's almost pausing on the back, so it's, uh, you're not quite sure when it's going to accelerate. 
it's sort of a very a, a slow, deliberate, completely extended in the back thing that you can see, but is is weird enough that that might play up in some cases, especially if the command's there. Right, and and uh, I had brought up, and I think you were not as familiar with him, but uh, for anyone who's looking for a reference point, uh, Taylor Jordan on the Washington Nationals is a pretty good example. Uh, he's got relatively long arm action. But I asked you, I said, well, well if teams don't necessarily prefer this uh, this sort of arm action, then why don't they change it? And your answer was, uh, I mean, the brief answer, all of you um, uh, expand upon it, is the is that you don't really that much like uh, the much like the Wu Tang Clan, Kyla McDaniel, arm action ain't nothing to f with. Is that fair? I don't know if I'm supposed to applaud you or wonder where it went wrong. But, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yes. Uh, and I, I guess it would be ironically. Maybe I'm not using this right, but uh, Tyler Wagner uh, is with the Brewers, and the I, the only example I'm aware of of a team drafting a guy with a slightly weird arm action and then trying to fix it was also with the Brewers, which. Makes you wonder why they didn't screw with Tyler Wagner. I guess because he didn't go in the first round, and the guy I'm talking about, Taylor Youngman, did. Um, but yeah, they, he had sort of a short catcherish arm action. They extended it to be sort of a typical compact pitcher arm action, and then his velo went down a couple ticks, and uh, that is kind of what you expect when you do something like that. Uh, I guess another example is. I don't think it was arm action, but I think it was sort of delivery and arm slot, which would t- uh, Madison Bumgarner, where they drafted him. The uh, Giants wanted him to sort of, I think it was be at a higher slot so we'd have a better chance against opposite hand hitters. And his velo was down to where he was like sort of touching 90 at best in games. When he was drafted, he was like regular up to 95, and I guess he still is now. And then he was like, guys, this isn't working. I need to go back to what I was doing. You're going to have to trust this. And then he did and then took off, and I guess the rest is history. And the idea there and how it's sort of been explained to me by many, many scouts, I guess technically all of them that I've asked so far, um, is there's not necessarily an objective measure for this, but when you hand a kid a ball and he throws it, that's probably how he's always going to throw it. And especially once he's done it for, you know, when these guys are drafted maybe a decade already and has, you know, thousands and thousands of innings and presumably hasn't been hurt a ton or maybe only been hurt once, uh, you don't want to start changing that. It's sort of, <laughs> for some reason, I'm thinking of uh, my dog when I was younger. Once you change his dog food, uh, <laughs> stuff happens. Like, even if you're changing something, something he's not supposed to be eating to something that is better for him, if you just one day give him this and it's been giving it to him for a year and then give him something else, you're going to have a lot of poop to clean up. <laughs> so, yeah, diarrhea. Yeah, so what I'm saying is arm actions are like dog poop. Um, <laughs> uh, well, what do they call it? No, stomach distress, I believe, is what they call it. Stomach yeah, distress. And, yeah, and I guess you could make that, uh, you know, extend that analogy to arm actions that something weird has to be up with a guy to throw thousands and thousands of innings doing this unnatural act and not get hurt. Right. So why would you try to guess if there's another way he can do that? Because <laughs> there probably isn't. Because most people can't do that. Right, because, know, it's all, because it, regardless... When we're talking about throwing a baseball, it's just varying shades, varying degrees of how bad it is for your arm because it's always bad for your arm. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I know with the whole Brady Aiken thing, uh, his sort of the mystery of his medicals and all that and what it means to have a smaller UCL, if that's indeed all that's sort of wrong with him, even though he's never been hurt, um, 
there was something in the New York Times where they quoted Dr. James Andrews, and he said, of the pitchers in the big leagues that have thrown, I'm sort of paraphrasing this, but of all the pitchers in the big leagues that have thrown 200 innings for multiple seasons, something like 75% of them have some sort of anomaly in their elbow because that it's really weird to be able to do that. So your elbow has to be weird. And so at some point this, you know, you could read uh, Aiken having a smaller UCL as being further proof that he's a complete weirdo because I guess on on paper, a guy with a small UCL should never be able to hit 97 from the left side when you're 17. So this almost confirms that he's a total weirdo, which should be positive if you sort of use my, you know, my black swan theory. If a guy is rated this high on a draft and is this good, despite having some weird stuff about him, that almost implies he's even more fit to make adjustments because he's had to make adjustments to get that high in the first place with the scouting bias against him. Although I've never applied it to medical stuff, and this is all sort of speculation based on what sort of leaked out and everything, but all the all the hemming and hawing and uh, and sort of off-the-record non-confirmation seem to indicate that what's going around about Aiken is true, and it sounds like all the teams will have some sort of official medical to look at uh, by next year's draft when he's, you know, eligible again. Uh, but, yeah, there's there's something to be said, you know, I guess tying this together with, uh, with Margot and some of these other guys, that uh, weird stuff can work when you're really talented. And in some ways, baseball is just sort of like a big natural selection engine. And so when guys are weird but are still fit and thriving, that should almost make you want to like them more. Uh, speaking of Houston pitchers, um, you just mentioned, uh, well, he's not really his pitcher. Drafted by Houston, though, uh, uh, Brady Aiken. Um, he, I, I would like to address the effect you have on Houston pitchers when you attend their starts. Mark <laughs> <laughs> um, Capel pitched last night. Uh, you were, uh, you were, uh, well, you were probably already back in Florida by that point. You, you went from Arizona to Florida yesterday, and he was uh, pretty excellent. Uh, four strikeouts, no walks. Against 18 batters, five innings, scoreless, just one hit. You saw him, uh, the, his, the start before that was on Halloween. I think he pitched, what, a brilliant first inning? Yes. And then melted down? Yeah, slowly got into sort of meltdown mode, yeah. Right. Uh, me, uh, not unlike this particular scenario, Vincent Velasquez, also in the Houston organization. <laughs> yeah. Fantastic, uh, fantastic during the Arizona Fall League. Fantastic um, during the season in Cal League, too. I've yeah. talked to maybe a dozen scouts that all raved about him. Right, and he's hitting, uh, he was, what, sitting at like 95, 94, 95 with his fastball. Yeah. Uh, showing a, what, above average, uh, average to above average uh, secondary stuff. Yep, even in a bad start, he had, he had that. Even in a bad start. And yet what happens when Kylie McDaniel <laughs> sits behind home plate? He doesn't even make it out of the first inning. I have a feeling I'm going to go watch uh, another Astros prospect, and he'll just spontaneously combust. And at <laughs> yeah, that point, right. I'll be barred from watching their prospects. Yeah, you'll have to. Yeah, you'll get uh, you'll get some people. Well, Jeff Lunau will crush you. Yeah, well, and it's also I, I don't know if we're going to extend this. Uh, if I'm further using ironic correctly, that their prospect list I think is the longest one I've written so far, because I went over a thousand words on like three of their prospects, which see, which Moran and Appel are kind of the two examples of recent high first rounders that they have, one they took and then one they almost took and then traded for, where the industry is like very split on them and very sort of wary of what's going on and if this is going to work and all that. And then I show up to watch one of those players and then another one that wasn't controversial and they were, you know, pretty not that good. So, yeah, maybe me and Houston just don't mesh very yeah, well. Yeah, I know. It's good, yeah. But uh, but in any case, uh, well, I watched part of it. So Appel's start last night was, was broadcast on MLB.com. 
Um, as are, I think a couple more starts are scheduled for that for that same thing. Although I don't know, I don't know the precise days at, the, at this moment. Um, I don't know. Does that mean anything? I, I I made a gif of one of his sliders that he threw to Spencer Keyboom, and uh, that was a pleasant one. I don't know. What, what do you say? Because you saw him, and of course, because you make this point about Velasquez, I think in during your chat you said, yeah, this is the problem. If you know you don't want to base your entire uh, read of a guy on one. One appearance because the pitches look fine, but what he left a couple, we saw he left a couple pitches up. And you have to extrapolate from the performance that the command was off because the stuff in in you know uh, the raw stuff was pretty fantastic. Um, so is that what you conclude about your the 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 thing you the uh, start you saw from Appel too, or is that maybe because it's colored by some of his difficulties this year, it's a different situation? Yeah, I mean both of them showed. The raw stuff, uh, sort of commensurate in the margin for error for what I've been told the raw stuff is, and in Nepal's case from what I've seen in the past. Uh, Velasquez got pulled after like five batters or something like that, so, and it was my first time seeing him, so it wasn't like I, uh, uh, you know, had tons of history with him or, uh, saw him sort of descend into some sort of, you know, problems. It was just sort of, wasn't commanding early, probably was on a limited pitch count, was sort of deep into that pitch count in the first inning, just seemed reasonable at that point to, uh, uh, to pull him at that point. Uh, Appel, and we talked about this at length, I guess we haven't done it technically on the, uh, on the podcast, uh, but there's, I don't know, there's a lot of stuff swirling around him about, uh, his mental makeup, uh, how tough he is, how much he attacks with his stuff. Uh, will he be able to reach his upside? His uh, sort of mental and emotional response to his stuff being down. Like, there's just a lot of stuff around him that isn't around other guys. And I think some of that is due to his stature of being taken 1-1 and, and then being a first-round pick and not signing the year before. Some guys uh, may be a little tougher on him because he's a you know kid that went to Stanford that employs Scott Boris that turned down like $3.5 million out of the draft and then got even more the next year. Like People don't tend to like that sort of thing just uh, for sort of the type of people that scouts and executives tend to be and where they come from. Uh, but he also exhibits more of the sort of um, hallmarks of uh, mental softness, I guess if you want to say, mm-hmm. uh, than other top prospects, and I think has a more definable way of not getting to his upside in sort of the short term, like getting the most out of his stuff uh, in start to start, than other prospects, uh, especially with his sort of pedigree. Um, usually when guys don't succeed, it's just sort of, oh, it's a typical, you know, just the mechanical thing that we'll fix, or, oh, he was hurt and then he came back. Like, there's usually an explanation, whereas with Appel, there's a lot of tougher things. And then people that have talked to him, and I count myself one of them, I've interviewed him after one of his starts in college. Like, he's just sort of a soft-spoken, nice kid, uh, which makes it easier to hang this soft stuff on him. Mm-hmm. So... I guess I'm sort of hedging a bit from what I told you and what I think my opinion is on him based on what I know because it's hard to know exactly what's going on in someone's head and what the solution is and can he succeed this way and what is he really like and what is he thinking. and Like, I don't want to project all of that onto him, what I I think it is. I think you could probably tell what I think it is, but – but I don't, I don't want to crush the guy because for all we know, he's going to, you know, take off next year and, you know, beat Dontrell Willis and, you know, be a stud as a rookie and all that's, well, hopefully 
be not, better not than all Paltrow. Of the things. Yeah. Well, but you mentioned an example with... of being like a rookie, you know, Dynamo and all that. Uh, so that's obviously possible. So I don't want to crush the guy when I have, you know, sort of limited information, but people that have more information than me kind of crushed him. So I, I tend to think there's something there. Yeah. But, and, and you also mentioned though that simultaneous that it, it could be, uh, I think maybe Justin Verlander was the case you used of a pitcher who had a reputation uh, for having immense, uh, raw tools. But always being too, there was a perception that he was too nice, essentially. Um, mm, don't think it was Verlander, but I'm sure it was somebody else. Ugh, whatever, it wasn't Verlander. I'm pretty sure it was Verlander. <laughs> I, I think it was Dwight Howard as a basketball player that is absolutely that kind of player, and it has oh, held yeah. back to potential. Uh, that's, yeah, that's right. Dwight that's Howard. sort of the pejorative way of saying that he'll always, you know, with Howard, he's so unbelievable. He's like sort of the Giancarlo Stanton of uh, basketball, where it's like he's so good, you knew he was going to succeed. But he has such sort of, uh, I don't know, whatever you want to call it, mental softness or whatever, that he's never going to reach his upside. And when it comes down to like those sort of crunch time games, he's always going to sink. Uh, we saw some of those sinking and crunch time elements in the Appel start that we saw. And I've seen that before uh, from him. But that's also, you know, from a handful of starts over his entire career is by no means representative of what he is as a person or what he's going to be going forward or if he can sort of, you know, make these adjustments and become more mentally strong if that is, in fact, what he is now. Uh, like I said, there's there's a lot of parts to it. Uh, but, yeah, there, there have been examples of this, but he is an easy one to pick out a, a, as a guy that seems to have these problems when baseball players as a whole tend to be sort of – to use a cliche, sort of a grittier, tougher mental bunch, because to get to where guys like Appel are, you have to be sort of counted out and fail. And if you're a hitter, you fail 70% of the time anyway. And most of these guys don't finish college. Like, it just tends to be sort of a lower IQ, more of like a street smart rather than book smart kind of bunch. Right. And so these sorts of things usually don't apply to them, and they apply to him. And scouts don't tend to be... This sort of player, when they play, they tend to be more of the short on tools, you know, high on getting the most out of them sort of guy. So it's, I guess, easier for them to sort of notice this sort of thing and kind of, you know, make it into more of a negative than a guy that's short on tools that they, you know, kind of like because he does it the right way and all that. So, like I said, there's there's a lot of things to point out, but I think some of it may just be, uh, you know, kind of being the wrong type of problems to have rather than having an enormous problem. Uh, I don't want to keep you forever. Uh, I would like to note that today Baseball America released their complete free agent, uh, minor league free agent list, 500-plus players. And I assume that uh, – I'm not uh, saying that you've poured through it, um, but I assume that – In fact, I haven't even looked at it, but go no, ahead. <laughs> right, right. The point is, though, I assume that for someone uh, like yourself or for anyone who um, follows prospects w- – um, with some degree of diligence, these minor league uh, free agent lists are, are an interesting experience just to uh, to go to sort of uh, pour through them or look through them and see some of the names that at one point uh, were sort of harbingers of hope. Yes. Uh, and now uh, are the, you know, I mean, if you've made it through at least six, six years or more of the minor leagues and your team has not added you to a 40-man roster, then it means that, you know, that, well, at least one organization doesn't necessarily have a lot of faith in your upside. You know, maybe it's due to injury. Um, you know, of course, it could be due to lack of uh, production. But, uh, for example, I just happened to come across the name uh, Michael Almanzar. Yeah. Who was, was he a Rule 5 pick last year, I think? He, yeah, well, I know he ended up, yeah, on the, or he, he was traded the Orioles somehow. 
um, I think for, for Kelly Johnson. Yeah, these these were the uh, I'm sure five years ago these the players that were on this minor league free agent list were mentioned in many a prospect chat as the you know the next hype in our future uh, you know rosters of you know five years from now which I guess would be today uh, and now they're minor league free agents right. which gives you an idea. Of well, well for example, that's my, hey hey. Um, Sounds like your dog's got some thoughts on him. She does, yeah. Well, for example, another a minor league free agent uh, today, uh, Brett Wallace. Ah, uh, yes. One point the thirteenth overall pick um, in the draft. He of the heaviest thighs in baseball. Yep, uh, sizable thighs. Uh, still projected by Steber to produce a league average batting line. Of course, at what position he does that? Um, well, it's not really a question anymore, is it? Um, it's first base. At one point, there was. I don't know if, it, if anyone ever really thought he would be a third baseman, but I definitely saw him play third base for a Triple H St. Louis team. Yeah, I mean you can prop him up over there, but especially given the enhanced uh, uh, emphasis on defense, yeah. he is not a third baseman. Yeah, uh, Josh Vitters is on the minor league free agent list. One uh, of my favorite prospects to say I didn't think would be very good from long ago, so I guess I got that one. Number uh, number three overall pick. Uh, when he was taken, of course, you can imagine, uh, I don't know what the coverage was like in 2007. That's when he was drafted. So he might have even been a minor league free agent last year. Uh, yeah, for, for the Cubs fans out there, uh, I'm told the Cubs were somewhat close to taking Jared Parker at that spot, which I guess would have worked out a little bit better. So if you want to want to know who, who you could, you know, if Rays fans are like, oh, we could have had McCutcheon and Posey, uh, Cubs fans can pencil in Jared Parker as the guy you could have had there. Yeah. Sorry, guys. <laughs> Can't get them all. Sorry. All right. Also, uh, Tyler Green. Remember Tyler Green? There's like six Tyler Greens. This is the former Cardinals guy, also first-round pick. Okay, yeah. I guess yeah. He, I think he's from the southeast coast of Florida, if I'm not mistaken. And he was also uh, regarded, I believe, as a as – a, I don't know if he was going to be a star, but he was a first-round pick at uh, Georgia Tech, it looks like. And uh, yeah, oh, I think he, I'm mixing him up with the other Tyler Green now. No, this guy's from, what, Plantation, Florida. Okay, yeah, then I guess it is the same guy. Yeah, St. Thomas Aquinas High School. Yeah, uh, that's down Palm Beach area. Probably not a public school. It is not. No. Um, who else we have? Oh, Lars Anderson. Oh, yeah, another hyped Red Sox prospect that I didn't quite understand the hype all along. Yeah. Although it's easy to say that now. Right. Uh, and I think uh, he actually didn't, didn't have a, a bad AAA season, but uh, at age 26, which is what he was this last year, Hopefully, um, especially with his pedigree, looking for something a little bit, a little bit better than that. Um, yeah, it's just, uh, I suppose, a sobering reminder. Uh, well, first of all, all these guys continue to be very good at baseball. However, their competition is people who are even better at baseball. So that's a problem. Yeah. Uh, that's Unfortunately, they are big leaguers, so they are not that good anymore. Right. If, if somehow all the major leaguers were to die, I think that many of the players I just mentioned would uh, – would acquit themselves quite well in the new version of Major League Baseball. This guy pretty macabre pretty quickly. Yeah, right. Right. If there was a weird, very targeted apocalypse and it only it only centered on current major leaguers, then in the next Then version, my job suddenly becomes very important. Oh people would be yeah. <laughs> They'd be clamoring for me. Yeah. Um, as opposed to this now. This is why I, this this is why I'm not married. Just in case this happens, I would get so popular. Right. Uh, me and Kate Upton done deal. Okay. All right. If that's what you want to look at, <laughs> if that's the direction you want to go. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I could write more and get paid more and be on TV, but eh, kind of overrated if you ask me. Yeah. Ridiculous. 
but the yeah so uh so i guess uh yeah but no but it's a reminder that uh not everyone works out it's hard and i think yeah, is, this, is this ending in a question where are you going with this it's an observation, but I would say it relates to a comment you've made and one that this 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 serves to reiterate is that uh, even people who are paid to know – even people who are paid to do this don't always know what they're doing. Yeah, I guess that could be like a uh, – I know when I – days after I started Fangraphs, I wrote the What Scouting Can Tell Us post as sort of like, uh, hey, guys, I know that this is going to look ridiculous five years from now, but here's what I think. Right. Just knowing that here's what I think is you know going to be riddled with errors in the end, but it's the best we can do right now. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not one of those guys that did like you know top 100 prospects five years ago. I started out with sort of a more limited scope and only recently have done sort of the big – uh, you know, across the minors prospect stuff. Mm. Uh, but if you could, uh, you know, if I had such a list from five years ago that I did, we could make that like the header for each of my articles, or instead of linking to the other prospect list, we could just say like, as a reminder, this guy's an idiot. <laughs> right. Well, you hope what? You hope to aggregate all of the information that's available to you and uh, make decisions on, you know, using some combination of reason and uh, and you, oh, and you have to reference your your library. What, it, what it's your internal your scouting library, right? Yes, you seem to uh, to like that uh, that concept. It did, yeah. And it, I could explain it briefly, which was, uh, you know, if you've seen if you see something and it looks like something you've seen before that doesn't work, then it probably won't work. And if it looks like something that has worked, then there's a better chance it would work. And you're always looking to build in uh, your brain in your mind uh, the this you, you pause like you are a robot trying to guess where all the thoughts come from your um, i didn't know what how is to... that brain how do you say brain well brain is like a brain is what more like a physical scientific idea and then mind is is more of an abstract i mean mind doesn't really exist but or maybe more like you're a zombie that didn't want to out that you're really into brains and you're like sorry and that um how you say uh, what's that thing i'm not interested in oh yes yeah, brains right. yes yes um the uh, right, so you have that in, you have that in mind, you have, and you have a memory. You use your memory to to uh, compare the things that you are seeing with things you have seen, and it's and you have to build that up. Uh, yeah, and that's and, also like I guess like you're saying you're you're constantly cataloging the things you see as has this worked before? Is this going to work? But then also, you know, like I guess the thing you kind of gravitated to was what is average? You're constantly thinking of something and then thinking of what your concept of average is, and I. There's one example I told you that I'm constantly sort of re-accessing in my mind that happened like 10 years ago uh, that I was saying it's always instructive for for you to have uh, that thing, which I guess we were searching for for you the whole week. I'm never sure if we actually settled on what the thing was you're going to remember for the rest of your life. No, no, I don't. It hasn't happened yet, but I will say one thought that I had, and I think that you half endorsed it, um, but I think it's it it's helping me, which was because I was having in particular with the secondary pitches. Um, I felt like I did not necessarily have any uh, reference points off of which to base my assessments. Yeah, I could be, you know, I mean, I wasn't totally clueless, but I had, was having a difficulty. But I know I have done a lot of work with looking at uh, swinging strike rates by pitch type. And, I mean, if nothing else, how, I've made a lot of gifts of breaking, really good breaking pitches, you know. Uh, certainly when Matt Harvey first started up, that slider took – it was the audible gasp that, I, that you know that I sometimes produce when I see good baseball. Or when I say the word sangria. Yes, that's right. The word sangria, uh, I also enjoy that word. But uh, and drinking the word to which it which it represents, the fluid it represents. The um, but yeah. So so the thing that I think 
helped me a little bit. Again, even if it is not totally helpful, as I say, I say, is that pitch? What's that going to do in terms of swinging strikes relative to average at the major league level? And I think that that helped me. And I think that maybe people of the, the nerdier persuasion that might also help because they have that in mind too. Yeah, that's uh, I guess a very sustuli way to come about the uh, the idea of the uh, the library of what a fifty is for various different tools is using uh, using your reference point of the thing that you know well, uh, the thing you've done and have a bit of a library for also. Uh, although I will point out that your gifts tend to be from the uh, center field angle, which obviously we're not watching from that angle. So there is, there is a limited uh, uh, conceptualizing of your past and then uh, the scouting angle. Yeah, uh, of course. Yeah. yeah. But, but that also is, I guess a further reason to just go to a bunch of games. If you want to figure this out, which I feel like I consistently give that advice when someone wants to ask how to break into baseball or how to be a scout or whatever it's, Actually, I answered that in the chat today. It's go to so many games that uh, you can't be denied. Be nice and helpful to people for no reason because that's similar to comedy. You do a bunch of stuff for free, and eventually people pay you to do stuff. You don't ask to get paid right off the bat. Or blogging, by the way. Yeah, and then yeah, and then meet as many people as possible to increase your odds of finding that person that happens to have a job and wants someone like you, and uh, and find someone that can sign off on you. At, you know, and all those things sort of coming together at the right time. So. Yeah. So, Carson, what I'm saying is try to be nice to people because uh, I think you've disregarded that for far too long. <laughs> I, I, I Decent. <laughs> well, one thing I helped at least to, it seemed like with talking to strangers at the games was uh, making it very clear that I'm an idiot. I think people found <laughs> – we're like, oh, well, he's – Which vindicated me from sitting next to you. It's like, oh, I should mention this guy's an idiot. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We don't, don't – don't listen to what he's saying. No, that's good. Listen to how he's saying it. Throw me under the bus, Kyle McDaniel. Uh, to two notes. Uh, one, uh, people will now hear this, but uh, the intro that we discussed in Arizona, I will record and send to you shortly, which I think you're really going to hate. Okay, um, very good. Uh, while we, while you were asking one of your long rambling questions, I edited and posted a Tyler Wagner video, which I suppose we can embed with that Margot video on the uh, page for the podcast so people could follow along. Wait, literally, as I was... As yeah, was it was only it was only like I, I loaded the video and then edited four pitches and put them up. But it's on YouTube now, uh, so that people have something to look at. I like I like the idea if we're going to talk about mechanics to at least put the videos on the page of the podcast so people are pulling it up via the web. They can yeah. Of, actually, I don't know what it does. I might just be it might be a link as opposed to the actual video because for the most banal reasons, it's just by a question how it like this one program captures the audio and puts it on iTunes. So it might just be a link. I don't know. Wow, you're you have high aesthetic standards. No, I'm saying if it might screw it up, and the podcast won't show up where it's supposed to show up. It's so it's so boring. I can't believe I'm still talking about it right now. Neither can I. <laughs> Explaining um, the thing I'm trying to explain. Yeah, right. The, the other part is, which I think will come up in next week's show if I can have my druthers. Uh, our writer in Arizona, Eric Longenhagen, joined oh, us. Love, love hey. Eric Longenhagen. Yeah, calm down. Um, I have decided he sounds exactly – his voice sounds exactly like Milhouse's dad, uh, Kirk Van Houten mm-hmm. from The Simpsons, which uh, after one of the games, uh, he and I went to go talk to Mike Farron of uh, Sirius XM Radio, yeah. who is a noted Simpsons fan. And I mentioned this to him, and he goes, yep, Kylie, you're exactly right. And so I told Eric his way to get on the podcast is to give us some vocal samples 
which we can play alongside Kirk Van Houten vocal samples so that the audience can, uh, decide, can decide if they agree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I could do, uh, by the magic of editing, we could make that happen. But again, while you're asking one of your long rambling questions, I searched for Kirk Van Houten uh, clips on YouTube, and the only one I found was him speaking in a Spanish dub version of The Simpsons. That might be harder than I thought it would be. My goodness. It's uh, the, the title of the video is Kirk Van Houten Padre de Milhouse. <laughs> <laughs> Which for some reason just people using the Spanish language as straightforward as they can makes me giggle. Yeah, that's yeah, Padre de Milhas. Wow, yeah. You know when uh who was that one first baseman? Uh let's say his name was uh, Steve Garvey. Steve Garvey? Was he a player? That that was yeah, that was a player. I think he went from the Dodgers to uh the, the Padres at one point. Uh and simultaneous to that. I think so I think he was not entirely Popular in San Diego? Yeah, that's what happened. Uh, it's simultaneous that he was, I think, getting in trouble maybe for having some children out of wedlock. I was just about to say, I heard he was popular with the ladies. I don't know if that's where you're going with this. Yeah, it's part of it. Uh, so apparently a shirt uh, circulated around San Diego. Uh, it said, Steve Garvey is not my padre. <laughs> so Is that sort of like Jesus is my homeboy? No. I mean, okay. this, it's barely related in the sense that uh, Jesus is a figure central to a religious tradition and a padre is one of the people who is sort of the interlocutor between the spirit and the people in that same religious tradition. Well, if that's a, if that's a closer, I don't know what it is. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Always go off in your good stuff. <laughs> you, you save the good content for the end, Carson, that's for sure. My wife and I are, uh, are going to see Tignataro tomorrow. Do you like her okay? I do, yeah. yeah. She's yeah. uh, she has a quite famous hour of of uh, comedy that I'm pretty sure you've probably heard if you're a fan of hers. Yeah, well, famous hour, and then there's also live, which I think is only a half hour, but that's the I one believe where... it is pronounced live. Actually. Oh, interesting, right? Very smart. Uh, but was she it a half was... hour? I thought it was an hour. That was only a half hour, I think. Uh, uh, well, yeah, that's I guess that's the thing that took her from sort of uh, alternative comedian that you only knew if you followed the scene closely right. uh, to uh, people everybody knew. Right. Probably not hurt. It didn't hurt that uh, uh, Louis C.K. was, uh, I think, in attendance that night and very touched by it. But it is a very touching half hour. I think it's available for free on Spotify. Um, it was an initially available for $5 on Louis C.K.'s site after he did his initial oh, right. special for 5 bucks. That's kind of how it how it got out right. there, but but, that, but now we're getting a little too too inside baseball and not about baseball. It's it's powerful. Anyways, it was, it was good. She's very, she's also very funny. Her first sh- uh, her first um, or the the one before that is also very funny. I should also mention, uh, as long as we're talking about things no one cares about, Steve Garvey went to high school about twenty minutes from my house. It has nothing to do with anything, but still, Tampa native. No, it doesn't really have anything to do with it. No. I just pulled up his Wikipedia to confirm that what we were saying was correct, and I'm like, oh, yeah, I forgot he's from Tampa. No, uh, speaking, though, of comedians and high schools, we met not Ting Notaro. Well, Ting Notaro is now on NPR a bunch, right? The other comedian, sure. The other comedian who's also on NPR a bunch is Mike Berbiglia. Berbigs. And we happened to meet uh, – I don't know I don't know if I'm revealing too much. I might have to reveal You shouldn't it. say his name. No, no, no. We're not going to say his name. But we happened to meet a scout who at one point had been – uh, Mike Berbiglia's teacher in high school. And the funniest thing was you or, or Eric, one of the two of you mentioned that to me, and then organically the other one who didn't know that brought him up during the game, and the scout leans over and goes, are you talking about Berbiglia? Is he big now? And we're like, yeah, I, I guess he is. Wait, <laughs> it was like, that, oh, I thought you guys had brought that up like because I was like, oh, yeah, he was he taught Berbiglia. I was under the impression one of the two of you knew, and then the other one brought it up not knowing, and then we all found out. That's funny. 
Yeah, which is especially weird if you're just the guy who that's, you know, one of his claims to fame. <laughs> yeah, right. Being a scout and people just bring up his name sitting next to you. Yeah. Yeah, but that was, uh, yeah, good times all around. All right, this is, we're done. This is dr- trash now. Garbage time right now is what they call this. Where are you? Kylie? Are you gone? No, I just want to see how long it would take for you to notice. <laughs> yeah. Why? Because I think I'm, wait, how many videos did you post to Tyler Wagner in that one silence? Uh, well, I'm up to six now. Okay. Uh, do you want me to do more? No, I don't. All right. Well, we can put the uh, we'll put those links up. All right. If, if, if thank you, Kylie, for on behalf of myself and all of the listening listening people. Yeah, you. This is flown off the rails. I'm gonna get into my NPR persona so I can uh, appropriately uh, give this intro. Okay. This is Kylie McDaniel. You're listening to Fangraphs Audio. Granola. <laughs> is that the entire thing? Yes, I thought it spoke for itself. Yeah, it did. All right. That's great. All right. Toad back. Thank you. Thank you, Kylie. Pledge drive. Kylie McDaniel, lead prospect analyst, lead prospect analyst for Fangraphs.com. I'm Carson Stooley. This has been Fangraphs Audio. Smooth jazz. Mm